congregation, the text for this morning's our sermon is from Micah 5, the second verse. Micah 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting so far. An everlasting king from Bethlehem. The theme for this morning, an everlasting king from Bethlehem. Three thoughts. A little Bethlehem. Secondly, a king in Israel. And the third place, one from everlasting. So an everlasting king from Bethlehem. A little Bethlehem, a king in Israel, and one from everlasting. The congregation next week is the official beginning of the Advent Sundays. But I like to begin today already. The next two Sundays I hope to be in Bolivia to oversee the mission work that is done and to visit the families, the mission families. When I come back, the Lord willing, we have the Lord's Supper on the 11th and baptism on the 18th. So there's not much room for Advent Sunday, so Advent service. So I'd like to begin the Advent today. As I said, Advent usually begins the fourth week before Christmas. It's an old tradition. It is never to be found, it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. But it's good to have a a preparation time for Christmas. That's what Advent is about, to live towards that day of the celebration of Christmas, of the birth of the Lord Jesus. We have a preparatory time for the Lord's Supper, and now we have four-week preparatory time for Christmas. To then think of and celebrate and meditate on the incarnation the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, of the Son of God. Incarnation? I'm sure some of the children don't know what that means. Boys, girls, do you know what it is? Incarnation? In, you know what in means, right? Incarnation means the flesh, the muscles, the bone, the body. So the Lord Jesus was already in heaven in his divinity, in his deity as God. And he came down on earth and he took upon himself the flesh, the carnus, the flesh. And he became in the flesh, in carnus, incarnation, in the body. That incarnation was a gift of God. And there was also a purpose for that, right? Why? Why did the Lord Jesus, why did Christ become incarnate? Why did he become flesh 
Why did he take upon himself a body, a human body? What's the sense of that? I hear some say, I know why. Because the Lord Jesus wanted to perform miracles on earth. Well, yes. And someone else is saying he wanted to preach the word in the body. That is correct also. And someone else says he wanted also to obey. Because Adam did not obey, so he is the second Adam. And he is actively obedient in, in, instead, instead of his people. So for his people, for the church of God, he took upon himself his human nature so he can do what they didn't. That is very good. There's something else, something very serious. Why the Lord Jesus had to assume a human nature? Why he had to be in the body? You know the reason? Maybe the older ones know it. It is because he had to die. When babies are born, we know that someday they will die. Because life is not forever on earth. But the Lord Jesus, exactly the same. He came in the body so he could also die and be crucified. Without the body, he could not even suffer. He couldn't die. So the immaculate child, immaculate, again, a difficult word maybe for the children, that means pure means no pollution at all, nothing wrong with it. The immaculate child in the manger who had no sin was going to die because the Lord had said already in paradise, the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So he had to die. And that incarnation was not an afterthought. What is an afterthought? Well, you're working on the plan to do something, and it fails. You say, what now? So you're coming with a plan B. Well, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus is not an afterthought. It's not a plan B. Because it was already known and decided upon in eternity before the world began that there will be a Savior. So it was already known that there will be a fall. There was not an accident. It was not that it took the Lord by surprise. Of course, the Lord is not the author of sin. He cannot be the author of sin. Impossible. But he apparently allowed sin somehow, and it becomes difficult for us to understand. And the Lord had also promised after the fall, had promised after the fall that he would save a people by his son, by the seed, by a savior. Shortly after the fall, 
still in Genesis 3, already in the third chapter of the Bible, we read about, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So there will be a seed, a seed of the woman. That Genesis 3, verse 15 is the first Advent text. So early in the Bible, right? It is not an afterthought. Even not because it was spoken of in Genesis 3 already. It is from eternity. And I read also in Genesis 15 already about it. The Lord brought Abraham abroad outside. And the Lord said to Abraham, look now towards heaven and tell the stars, count them, if thou be able to number them. And he said also to him, so shall thy seed be. Thy seed be. So that the offspring, and we know from the expressions of the Apostle Paul that he meant the seed in singular. The seed being the Lord Jesus. And don't forget what the Lord has spoken to King David. You're getting close to the text, right? Think of King David. David's idea was to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord replied with, When the days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the Lord promised David that there will always be someone on the throne of David. Who else can there be then? As the Lord Jesus. However, we know the history of the people of Israel, right? They inherited the land, coming from Egypt, and they began to serve the idols, the Molochs, and the Baals, and the Ashtaroth. And in response to that, the Assyrians and the Babylonians came and eventually destroyed Jerusalem. So where was the kingdom now? There's no kingdom left. Where was the seed of the woman now? The seed of Abraham. The tree of David. This is such a beautiful cedar tree. Tall and beautiful. It was cut down. And only the trunk was left. Where you walk in the forest, you often see it, right? Those trunks. And they are molding, and they are returning back to dirt. It looks as if God's plan had failed. The enmity had formed an army. The enemy had formed an army, and they gathered the troops. And the enemy had seized Jerusalem and other cities. And the Babylonians killed the kings of Israel. And that is how chapter 5 begins. 
Is he done? Micah 5. It's kind of sarcastic that the prophet speaks to the Babylonian armies. Now gather thyself into troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. See that? In verse 1, that's important to understand. Chapter 5, verse 1, Gather thy sovereign troops and armies, O daughter of armies, and you have laid siege on Jerusalem, and you will use the rod and kill. But, that's the first word of verse 2, but, that's not the end of the world. That is not there they'll be left. Satan will not have the victory. The people of Israel will not go under. They will not be erased and taken out of this world. The Lord yet sticks up for his people. And he will have his son come. And he will have the victory himself. The Lord will continue with his work in spite of all those sins of Israel and all the consequences of it. So they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek, but thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, thou that be little among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall he come forth unto me is the ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So is a contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. It looks grim, but the armies are coming, have come, but don't be mistaken. The Lord is faithful to his own work, and the Lord will continue to save the people from their sins, and the Savior will yet come as the king in Bethlehem. So that brings us to the first thought, little Bethlehem. Why? Why don't you read here, but thou Jerusalem, O thou Samaria, why not the big city with the temple? Why, but thou Bethlehem? Really? Bethlehem. Do you know Bethlehem? You remember maybe that Rachel, the wife of Jacob, died in Bethlehem? That's not so important our text, but let me just mention it. It came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died, 
and was buried in the way of Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And I am told that close to Bethlehem, right now, six kilometers south of Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, there is still that sepulcher, that grave of Rachel. And who knows? Some say it is real. Some say it is the, less, the least touristic attraction in Israel. I don't know. Bethlehem still exists, that's true. Approximately 30,000 people are living there right now in Palestinian territory. And every December, thousands of tourists are visiting the town, celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus. And I don't want to be there. I don't care for that. Because the Lord Jesus is not there. It is all fake. It's all past. And I'm sure Satan loves it to distract people and to tell them to go there on pilgrimage to Bethlehem, like the Muslims go to Mecca, go to Bethlehem and adore him. But he is not there. Where is he then? Where is the manger? Where can you find the Lord Jesus? Not in Bethlehem, but in the Bible. In the Bible, the Bible is the manger. The Bible is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would like to find the Lord Jesus, don't go to Bethlehem. But open that Bible and ask the Lord to reveal him. You may see him, that you may have light upon him, that you may adore him. Micah writes about Bethlehem Ephrathah. Some texts give the impression that Ephrathah is a city as well, close to Bethlehem. You have Bethlehem and Ephrathah. And sometimes they say Bethlehem Ephrathah, meaning the Bethlehem close to Ephrathah, in contrast to the Bethlehem in Zebulon in the north. So you had Bethlehem Zebulun and Bethlehem Ephrathah. And others say, no, Ephrathah is the area. That's also possible. At least we know that it's called Bethlehem Ephrathah because there's also a different one. What else do you know, remember, of Bethlehem children? You know another Bible story about Bethlehem? What about Elimelech? Who is Elimelech? What about Naomi? They left Bethlehem because there was a famine in the land and they went to Moab, right? And Naomi came back together with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. The Moabites. And they came back to Bethlehem. And there Ruth married Boaz. 
And there they received also children. And there Jesse was born. And there you see the roots of the birth of the Lord Jesus. The root of Jesse in Bethlehem. And yet this town of Bethlehem was almost forgotten. The Lord knew about that city, of course, but it was now a little town, a forgotten town. Thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, so compared to all the thousands, where thousands he can also be translated as clan, or as family, or as village of 10,000. We don't know exactly. But what we know is that Bethlehem was little compared to many other towns. It was something people did not care for. And that's kind of important to remember. Because that reveals a pattern. It reveals something that's a theme in the whole entire Bible. That the Lord does not look at the wise and the rich and important. That he goes to the people low. To the low estate people. To the poor ones. To the sinful ones. To make it a surprise. To say, let it say, what? Bethlehem? Really? That's strange. The Lord wants to surprise, and the Lord also has a different purpose with that. We'll come back to that. The little, the little town. You know, we read in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 through 29. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised. Has God chosen? They are things which are not. Why? Now listen to this. To bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glorify in his presence. So the reason is God wants to honor himself. And the Lord is so honored when he is looking for the foolish, when he is looking for the weak, when he looks for the undeserving, when he looks for the notorious sinners, because he doesn't like it when people are lifting themselves up in pride. But he likes it when people are low and lay low and are acknowledging that. It's everywhere in the Bible. <clears throat> Think of that prayer 
of thanksgiving of the Lord Jesus. Our Father, he said, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. See that? Reveal unto babes. That's the way the Lord works. He just strips people from all their importance and from their presumption and brings them law, makes them unworthy, makes them feel guilty, and empties them, and then fills them. Also, Mary sings about that. He has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. See? That gives kind of hope, doesn't it? Maybe you also feel forgotten, neglected, overlooked, unimportant. You feel the figure, I don't count. Maybe you have this also low thoughts of yourself. And maybe there is pride. It can be pride to have to be so depressed about that, because who cares what people think? You apparently think too much about it. Nevertheless, the Lord also, in the work of the Holy Spirit, makes people empty, and they're unworthy of the least of the blessings of God. And so the Lord glorifies himself. So poor ones, needy ones, unworthy ones, there is room. And present yourself to the Lord as less than Bethlehem. And say, Lord, I have heard about Bethlehem. If Bethlehem can be chosen, what about me? Brings to the second thought. The king in Israel. We have seen verse 1 already, right? Verse 1, we saw that the king of Israel will be hit with a rod on his cheek. And instead of that judge, thou shalt, thou, the, the Lord will give that little Bethlehem a ruler. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me. Listen carefully. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me. So the Lord is speaking. And the Lord is saying that no king, that no ruler will be coming forth from Bethlehem. But it will be for or unto me. He shall come forth unto me, that is he to be the ruler, that is to be the ruler of Israel. 
out of thee and unto me. We know what it means, out of thee. Out of Jerusalem. Israel will be seized and the king will be smitten upon the cheek, but there's a contrast. There'll be a ruler coming, and the ruler is from Israel, is from Bethlehem. That is that but again, right? We also see something similar in Isaiah 9, also an Advent text. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And he will receive that power to take them out of Bethlehem, given all power, in heaven and on earth. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me. Out of thee from Bethlehem, from low estate, from a low place of no reputation. But then unto me. So do I see it well? But it says, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. The Lord says, that Savior that child in of Bethlehem will be there unto me. Yes, that is, the, 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 that is what the Lord says. Because you may think the Savior came for his people only. But the Savior does not only keep, come, come, did not only come for his people, he came for his Father. Unto me, the Lord says, out of thee, unto me. The Lord Jesus came to glorify his Father. That's just the reason. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his voice, his eyes rather, to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Lord Jesus came to glorify his Father on earth, to praise him, to obey him, to satisfy him, to be a sacrifice for him, to pay the price to him, to be close to him, to execute in, 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 in favor of him. So the Lord Jesus came for his Father. And that is 
so essential for salvation. The Lord saves a people for himself. The Lord saves a people not only for them, but for his own name and sake. And that is such a solid reason that makes it truly possible to preach the gospel. Because now I can say that you can be saved through him and because of him and not by works, not because of what we are doing. You may remember one of the most impressive texts in the Bible about that is Isaiah 43 in the verses 9 and 11. I, even I, am he that blotted out thy transgressions. I, I, I do it. I, even I, am he that blotted out thy transgressions for mine own sake. And they will not remember thy sins for my name's sake. Will I defer my anger? And for my praise, will I refrain from thee, that I cut thee not off? For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it? For how should my, how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Six times in two verses. For myself, for myself, for myself. So he will come, he will come forth out of thee unto me. So that is a solid pleading ground. Now you pray about something serious and what is not serious. You may say, Lord, for thine own name's sake. For thine own name's sake, Lord, for thy praise, for thy glory. Daniel also prayed that way. Daniel said, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God. For thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And did Moses also say something similar when he was praying for the people that had made a golden calf or dancing around it and were caught in idolatry? What did Moses say? When the Lord said, I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses besought the Lord his God. He said, Lord, why does thy wrath wax hot against thy people which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? 
Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say for mischief did he bring them out? To slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy thieves' wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Lord, what are the Egyptians going to say? Don't do it for thyself. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. What a contrast. A ruler came from Bethlehem. He came out of Israel, out of Bethlehem, unto the Lord. Compare the prophecy also to Zebulun. The prophecy about Zebulun, Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, the dimness, the darkness, shall not be such as was in a vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and after did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light that dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them has the light shined. See that? The Lord is using the small town of Bethlehem to also bring forth the Savior. The Lord also uses means, kind of low means, the Lord uses clay and mud and spittle to put on someone's eyes so that he might see. And so the Lord is also using small means today. You can think of a few of them. Small means to also save people, to make people see. The Lord is also using people to be deacon, pastor, elder, missionary. He uses Bethlehem. He uses weak means, not angels, to also preach the word of the living God. He uses people in his service like fishermen, right? I will make you fishers of men. An everlasting king from Bethlehem, a little Bethlehem, a king in Israel, and he will rule. This is an explanation of the kingdom that is coming. Because the prophecies in the Old Testament are often layered. Layered? I mean, they have sometimes deeper levels. So when it speaks about the deliverance from captivity, it sometimes includes the coming of the Lord Jesus, and it may even include the second coming of Christ. You know where you see three mountains next to each other? And you're in the same line on this side. You look at the mountain, you only see one. The other two are hiding behind the other mountains. 
So you climb on that first mountain. You say, oh, there's another one. And you see another mountain. And then behind is another one. And that's often the case with complex prophecies in the Old Testament also here. This does not only refer to the coming of the Savior. It also refers to the second coming of the Savior. The kingdom of God. Where there will be peace and where the Lord Jesus will reign. And where there will be no consequences of sin anymore. And the Lord will have new earth and new heaven with righteousness. And this king is from everlasting, it says. Our third thought. Congregation, the last line of verse 2. Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now some expositors state here that with everlasting is not everlasting. Everlasting means a long time ago, three centuries ago. Well, according to the original word, olam, that is possible. But when we compare the explanations of this in the New Testament with it, it must mean everlasting. It must mean from the beginning, from the very beginning of eternity, right? And there is no beginning to that. Like we read in John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Lord Jesus, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning, from everlasting, that King, the Lord Jesus, existed already. Before we were born, children, before we were born, we were in nowhere. We did not exist, even not our soul. We only existed in the thoughts of God. We did not exist yet. And then when we were conceived and born, we became people with a never-ending soul for eternity. But the Lord Jesus, when he was born in Bethlehem, he existed already, before that. He was already born before that. He was born before he was born. You say, Reverend, that sounds strange. Explain that to me. He was born before he was born. Well, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus had two natures, right? He had a human nature in the flesh incarnate, and he had also a divine nature. In his human nature, in the flesh, he was born in Bethlehem. He was born out of Mary, through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. 
that was the beginning of the human nature. The human nature had the beginning. Before he was conceived, he did not exist in his human nature. But what about his divine nature? When did the Lord Jesus become divine? From eternity. An eternity that never began. He was born out of his Father. Not made, not created, born. We call that the eternal generation of the Son. But does the Bible say that? Oh, yes. John 8, verse 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. No, that's not eternity. That's right. But that he was saying, before Abraham was I. Or John 17, verse 5 and 24. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So before the world was, the Lord Jesus already had the glory of his Father. And verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So it's going forth have been from of all. The Son of God was brought forth an eternity ago. And he was born in his divine nature in eternity. This is the Savior. He was rich and he was made law. We need him. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in heaven, before he was born in Bethlehem, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Interesting. This is something the Jews knew. Then the wise men came to Bethlehem. No, to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem. And they said to King Herod, we perceive that there's a king born in Israel. And Herod, of course, did not know anything about it. He did not know what was going on. 
six kilometers, seven kilometers away in Bethlehem. So he called the Jews, the priests, and he said, what do you know about it? And they said, well, we know about the prophecy of Micah. Here it is. Matthew 2. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them that Christ should be born. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people, Israel. See? So the Jewish people in that time, the priests, the high priests and the scribes, they knew it. It would be Bethlehem. Nobody went there. The, 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 the wise men, they went there. And nobody else. And is it not also true today? Do we go to Bethlehem? Do we go to that Bible? Or are we exactly like the Jewish people? They pointed others to Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem there. There he must be. And they did not go themselves. And do we say to other people he's in the Bible? And we don't seek him ourselves in the Bible. What a hypocrisy that is. I also like to point you to the Belgian Confession, Article 5, that is also speaking about this. On page 9, in the back of the Psalter book, referring to the fact that the Lord Jesus was, that the, that the, the Bible was, was, was right. It's Article 5 on page 7. We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith. Believing in the Bible, without any doubt, all things contained in them. Why? Not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but more especially because the Holy Ghost witnesseth in our hearts that they are, that the, the, the Bible is from God, whereof they carry the evidence in themselves for the very blind, there we go, the very blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in them are fulfilling. It's amazing. Hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the prophet Micah prophesied about him. How can it be? How can he know? He was 
inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we have proof that those things are happening. So many prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilling. It's happening. And don't we see then that the Bible is true? Not so much the church teaches us that. Mainly we feel it in our hearts, people of God. But also those prophecies are fulfilled. If you'd like to know more about this, children, then maybe you have some time this afternoon to read Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is about wisdom. And that wisdom is the Lord Jesus. So I would say, read that chapter if you have some time. And, and ask the Lord that you may find him. And in Proverbs 8, you will find, you will see the Savior in his divinity. Before he was born in Bethlehem. It is, it is writes beautiful verses about the Lord Jesus before he was born. How important that we know that the Lord Jesus is God from everlasting to everlasting. And that infinite God came to this earth in the human nature. How is it possible? What a contrast that God was so willing to give his only begotten son to such a dark world that they that believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, so Bethlehem Ephrathah is personified, right? It's a personification. The prophet says, thou, you, but you, Bethlehem, but thou, Bethlehem, so let me change that a little bit. But you, Chilovac, but you, congregation, but you, people, thou, though there be little among the thousands of Judah, yet you can be saved by such a Savior who has come to seek and to save them that are lost. May the Lord also create among us a absent people, a waiting people, not waiting until the Lord begins, but waiting to have the Lord Jesus revealed more. You know, during the time of the Lord Jesus' birth, some are waiting for the consolation of Israel. They're waiting for the Savior to come. But they already believed in him. Like Anna and Simeon and all. They, they were waiting for the coming, but they already believed in him. So is it also possible, possible today that people believe in him, but that they like a more clear revelation of him? Or at least are waiting for the second coming where he will come on the clouds of heaven and will be all in all for his people. He came, being rich, made himself poor, 
of no reputation to lift sinners up out of the dunghill and unto salvation. Amen.